0: Hey, Penknife listeners, Corey here. I again got stuck with the task of bothering you to help us promote the show. This season was both extremely time-consuming and costly. And if you like what you're hearing and want more Penknife, please help us out by doing one or more of the following. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us right now. Tell your friends, both in person, if that still happens, and on social media. And if you can spare a few bucks a month, please support us at patreon.com penknife. Thanks for suffering through my spiel. Here's the show. I hope you enjoy it.
1: Hello, Pen Life listeners. At the beginning of this season, we sounded the alarm to let you know that there would be some violence and difficult content in this season. This episode in particular is going to go into some detail about the sexual abuse of children. Some of the stories we're about to tell are very disturbing, so please skip this one if you need to.
2: Sunday, the 7th of May, 1967. First journal entry in Tangier. After changing, we went down to the windmill, a beach place run by an Englishman and an Irishman. The windmill is right along the beach, so it is very quiet. As I was sitting half asleep, a small voice said, hello? It was a little boy. He asked my name. Joe, I said. He nodded. Jew, he said. Yes. He spoke of how he was at school and was learning English. After more conversation during a lull, he said wistfully, do you like boys? Sometimes, I said. He nodded. You fuck him, he said, nodding to Kenneth. I shook my head and nodded conspiratorially. He is asleep. You will be here many days, he said. Yes. Goodbye, he said with a smile and stopped. I am Hassan. After he'd gone, Kenneth said, you can't have him, he's about 10. It'll have to be a cabin job, I said. They won't allow him in the cabins along the beach then.
1: On Joe's first day in Tangier, he doesn't actually have sex, but in the two months that follow, hardly a day goes by without Orton paying a teenager, aged 13 to 18, to sleep with him. Here's Orton relating a conversation with a friend where they discuss their age preferences.
2: He said that El Ayun was the place for boys and for tea also. I like young boys, he said. How young? Oh, very young. But how young, I pressed, 12? Oh no, he said, about 14. Oh, perfectly natural, I said. I think I have finally settled for 15. This is because my yellow jersey is 15. Though, mind you, I lust for Mustafa, and he can't be more than 14.
1: There are a number of scenes where he wants boys aged about 12 or 13, but doesn't act on his desires because he worries about legal repercussions. Younger than that, though, and Joe isn't interested. I mention that because, disturbingly, there are several 10-year-old sex workers who appear in his diary. When they show up at his door, he tells them to get lost. And while there is a harrowing section at the end of his diaries where he claims to be sexually aroused by physical contact with a three-year-old child, nothing happens, and there's no other mention of children so young. In other words, and if you believe the distinction is one worth making, Joe Wharton was not a paedophile in the sense that he didn't sleep with prepubescent children, but he certainly was a pederast and had a sexual preference for pubescent boys.
0: If hearing those passages from Orton's Tangier Diary as well as what Ramona just told you is more shocking to you than any other aspect of this story so far, you're not alone. If you're like me and you knew a bit about Orton before starting this podcast, or if you paid the slightest bit of attention to the overly heavy foreshadowing we've done throughout, you probably weren't that surprised by the murder-suicide. But this? I really didn't see it coming. Orton and Halliwell's trip to Tangier in May and June of 1967 comes halfway through the diaries. Before then, there are several warning signs for what's to come, such as Joe explicitly saying he slept with a 13-year-old. But because I'd never seen anyone who wrote about the diaries comment on it, I just wrote it off along with other references to young boys and 15-year-olds as jokes or exaggerations. But after getting to the Tangier section, there's no longer any doubt that he was writing from real experience. I kept on reading as confused as I was disturbed. How could this be? I mean, not so much how could he, which is also a valid question, but rather, how is it that I didn't already know about this? By the time I'd gotten to the diaries, I'd already read Orton's collected works, his biography, and countless articles and essays about him. I'd watched two full-length documentaries and everything else you can find on YouTube related to Joe Orton. And while, yes, there'd been mention of teenagers and again, quote-unquote, young boys in Morocco, I was not prepared to find what is essentially 70 pages of man-boy erotic in the diaries. Given that his story has been told so many times, and that we've heard all about Joe Orton, the great playwright, the gay liberation icon, and the victim of a horrible tragedy, it's mind-blowing to me that we haven't also heard about Joe Orton, the pederast.
1: Why is that? That's the question we're going to try and answer in this episode. We're going to begin by looking closely at Joe's time in Tangier, by showing you what's been there for anyone to read since the publication of his diaries in 1986. We're then going to share excerpts of a talk I had with Rachel Hope Cleaves, an historian who shared her insight on the way in which Western society's views on pederasty and pedophilia have changed over time. Fifty-five years after his murder, some might be inclined to judge him by today's standards, Whereas others might chalk it all up to a different time, a different place, and focus on what he did for theater and comedy. And as you can probably guess, we're going to try not to do either of those things. We'll neither condone his pederasty nor try to cancel him for it. Instead, we're going to attempt to chart a murkier third path, where we simply try to contextualize his behavior and understand why it hasn't been discussed since.
0: But first, the perfunctory introductions. This time stripped of their humor because this shit ain't funny.
3: Right, but murder-suicide is.
0: No, murder-suicide
3: is not funny. But we did the forced humor introductory bit on that episode, so you must actually be making a distinction between the two. Murder, funny. Child sexual abuse, not funny. You just find violent death to be a light subject, and I'm the sick fuck.
0: Ah, come on, man. Will you let it
1: go? Alright, enough. I'm Ramona Stout, a writer living in Greece, and I'm glad we've abandoned the goofy introductions.
3: And I'm Santiago Alamoine a writer and bookseller from Buenos Aires. And I take back what I said about murder never being funny. I mean, it wasn't in Orton's, nor the vast majority of cases, but that doesn't mean there's never been a funny murder. Like the one we discussed in episode 4, when Sean Waynes foolishly puts his ear to Glory Hall and got skewered to death by a very long penis. I mean, that was a pretty funny murder.
0: <laughs> I'm Corey Eastwood. <laughs> Jesus Christ. This is Penknife, Knife, a podcast about writers who may or may not have written about crime, but who definitely committed it.
1: I tried to be as specific as possible about the ages of the children Joe slept with because I think that's a reason it hasn't been talked about. Setting aside judgement, the truth is that historically a grown man sleeping with someone aged 15 to 18 wouldn't raise many eyebrows.
3: Right. An adult man sleeping with a 15-year-old girl was nothing compared to the literal crime of an adult man sleeping with another adult man.
1: Yeah, and we can talk about the ethics of an adult sleeping with a 15-year-old later, but now I want to make it clear that there were even younger children.
2: Saturday the 27th of May. I think it a little indiscreet to bring him back to the house, so I shall have him in a cabin one day. If his prick is as underdeveloped as last year, I shall know that he is not 14. What will you do then? Nigel said. I shall leave it for a year or two, like peaches on a sunny wall. Friday the 23rd of June. So, the 13-year-old can't take it properly. You'd better be careful, Kenneth said. You'll look fine if you hurt him and he's pouring with blood. I wish you wouldn't spread those rumors, I said angrily. Anyone would think I made a habit of slitting young kids' asses. It's quite easy to tell when you're hurting a boy. They're not dumb, you know.
0: Okay, age established. Let's now look at how Orton treated the boys.
2: Tuesday, the 9th of May while having sex with a 15-year-old child prostitute. "'How much you give me?' Five dirham,' I said. "'No, please, 15.' "'No,' I said. Five. he grinned. "'Okay,' he said, and went on. Tuesday the 23rd of May, after having sex with a boy named Mohammed, he then said he wanted 11 dirham. He owed this to the woman who'd altered his trousers. I finally gave him the 11 when I realised that. As he was going off to his native village on Thursday, this would be the last time I'd have to look at his stupid face. Thursday the 25th of May. I then saw Mohammed, the one that was coming at two. He wore a yellow jersey, and to distinguish him from the rest of his kind, I'll call him Mohammed Yellow Jersey. He's quite a nice kid, a very valuable addition to my collection.
1: Those passages pretty much speak for themselves. He objectifies the boys to the point of stripping them of their names because he can't be bothered to remember them. And the Orton who's haggling with these impoverished children over a few dirhams is the same Joe Orton who just sold the film rights to Luke for £100,000. For reference, £1 was equal to 14 dirhams back then.
0: What you're about to hear is one of the most oft-quoted passages from the diary. It's generally used to show Joe to be an iconoclast and, more importantly, a proud gay man, unabashed about his sexuality in a time when it was illegal. So, to set it up, there's this American couple sitting next to Joe and a friend on a cafe terrace. The Americans are clearly listening in as Joe's telling his friend a story. Knowing this, Joe plays it up. He took
2: me right up the arse, and afterwards he thanked me for giving him such a good fucking. The American and his wife hardly moved a muscle. We've got a leopard skin rug, and he wants me to fuck him on that. Only I'm afraid of the spunk, you see. It might adversely affect the spots on the leopard. Nigel said quietly, Those tourists can hear what you're saying. I mean them to hear. They have no right to be occupying chairs reserved for decent sex perverts. And then, with excitement, I said, he might bite a hole in the rug. And I can't ask him to control his excitement. It's the writhing he does, you see, when my prick is up him. It wouldn't be natural when you're six inches up the bum, would it?
0: That was enough for the Americans. They huffed off and Joe's friend told him he shouldn't do that because the town needs tourists. Not that kind, it doesn't.
2: This is our country, our town, our civilization. I want nothing to do with the civilization they made. Fuck them.
0: The first many times I saw this passage quoted, I pumped my proverbial fist, cheering him on against these horrible American tourists, indisputably the worst of all tourists. But then I read the diaries and realized that this passage, which would be hilarious and powerful if he were talking about having sex with another man, is actually about a 15-year-old boy whom he was paying for sex and whose name he could hardly be bothered
1: to remember. In case you're still on the fence about the ethics of what Joe was doing in Tangier, and let me tell you that many are, or they minimize it on the basis that he was paying for a service. And as we know, prostitution is top of everyone's list of career choices. Let me relate one more story. One day he went on a drive with a couple of friends, one of whom was named Di Reese Davies, who Orton refers to as a notorious one-eyed pederast. Davies is said to look like a frog who likes to pop his eye out as a joke to frighten children. On the drive, Orton describes Davies.
2: He beamed, his glass eye catching the light and giving him a positively devilish air. Like a picture mothers show their children captioned, Do not accept sweets from this man.
1: They were on a drive through the countryside. And as the drive began, the third member of the expedition, a guy named George Greaves, began singing, this is where you come if you want to get raped. Make way for the buggery bus. Here comes the buggery bus. Orton then describes their mission.
2: We stopped the car several times on the way to chat to boys and to give them cigarettes. Very shy boys. I like ones who blush, George said. I remember I used to fuck the blushes off their faces. And when they said, Madre mio, oh, oh, please don't. That's when I used to shove it up. He cackled, and then looked sad at the memory he'd conjured up. Di said, I had a little girl come up in this lift with me once. She got my cock out and began to suck it, and when the lift stopped, she ran away, and I found my wallet had gone from my back pocket. Serves you right, you dirty old queen, George said, messing with the unclean ones.
0: The power of Jordan's humor was in his continual desire to provoke, offend, and cross lines. Generally, I'm into that. But joking about raping children while you're driving around with a couple child rapists? Not so funny.
1: Nor is the bit later on when Orton and a friend have a laugh about the fact that one of the boys that the friend slept with was struck by lightning and killed. Another one of the most quoted passages from the Tangier Diary, also used as a rallying cry for gay liberation, is when Orton tells his friend, the actor Kenneth Williams, who is gay but conflicted about his sexuality and basically living asexually.
2: You must do whatever you like as long as you enjoy it and don't hurt anybody else. That's all that matters. You shouldn't feel guilty. Get yourself fucked if you want to. Get yourself anything you like. Reject all the values of the society. And enjoy sex. When you're dead, you'll regret not having fun with your genital organs.
1: How do you reconcile that line, which again, from the gay liberation perspective he meant it in, is extremely powerful, with what Joe was doing with the boys in Tangier?
0: That's the big question, isn't it? I mean, how did Joe himself reconcile it? He describes most of them enjoying it, and perhaps that was enough for him to see the fucked up things he was doing in a positive light. In 67, there was next to no consciousness about how PTSD can affect child sexual assault survivors later in life. Joe himself had his first sexual experience at 14 with an adult man and claimed to have enjoyed it. And perhaps he really didn't see how he was exploiting and hurting these boys. Or, perhaps because they were poor, brown, and North African, he didn't see them in the same way he would English boys. Perhaps, through an Orientalist lens, he could believe what he told Kenneth Williams that he wasn't hurting anybody because by the fact of being African, the boys were somehow less than anybody's.
1: It's worth noting again, that he was well aware of the danger he could face from authorities with the younger boys. At one point he pouts because a friend, will not let him take a 14 year old with them in the car to quote, fuck in the Hills outside of town. Both Kenneth and the friend agree that it's too dangerous to have a boy of that age in the car with them. Another time, after having sex with a young boy, he reflected that
2: Having had a boy of his age in England, I'd spend the rest of my life in terror of his parents or the
0: police. It raises the question, did he know what he was doing was wrong? Or did he view it as on par with having sex with men? After all, sex with a 14-year-old was just as illegal for him as sex with a 34-year-old. Likewise, it's important to note that in any homophobic society there's an absence of healthy models for gay teens' introduction to their sexuality. Often they end up learning by having sexual experiences with older people.
1: To try to make more sense of this, I spoke with Rachel Hope Cleves, an historian of sexuality who recently published a book called Unspeakable, A Life Beyond Sexual Morality, about the late 19th, early 20th century writer Norman Douglas, who was both a very popular writer in his day and an open and proud pederast. Her work uses Douglas's life and writing as a basis from which to explore how society's views on intergenerational sex have changed over the years. I started by asking her how common sex was between men and boys.
4: I mean, I think the answer is that our current norms around pedophilia are very recent, right? And that um, intergenerational sex and pederasty just didn't have the same level of taboo in, um, you know, like Anglo-sphere culture, that like, and it really, I think it's particularly tabooed in the sphere today, like in Canada and the US and Britain and Australia, right? These are the countries that have been like really obsessed with like pedos and pedophilia and all of the rest of this language. That taboo specifically within the Anglosphere even just did not have, you know, did not hold until really, I think, like the 1980s and not that there weren't child sex panics before so there certainly were in the 50s as well you know but you know things changed I think dramatically in the 80s and i and you know I'm 46 and like I have seen things change dramatically over the course of my lifetime right like our, our sort of widespread uh, attitudes towards intergenerational sex and I, I teach undergraduates and you know, I teach classes on sex and power and just like seeing their shifting attitudes towards like what sort of relations are okay and what are not. They're living in a different moral universe and a different sort of sexual morality regime than, you know, than I came of age in, certainly. So, um, so I think the short answer to the question is that, um, you know, for much of the period I have focused my studies on, like, late 19th through mid 20th century, a commercial sex between adult men and boys ranging ranging in age from kind of very early puberty, like 10, 11, 12 to 17 or so was just ubiquitous. Boys prostitution was ubiquitous and it was common in uh, Britain and it was common in, Southern Italy, and it was common in North Africa, and it was common in other places as well. And the eroticization within queer male culture of youth was widespread. Not to say that like all queer men were pursuing sexual encounters with boys. I mean, there were plenty of people who are sexually oriented towards, you know, um, adults, right? Uh, and But it was not a uh you know what we would now call like I don't know what he says homosexuality anymore, right? But like there was no sharp division between adult oriented sexuality and youth oriented sexuality.
0: It's worth keeping in mind that Tangier, beginning in about the nineteen twenties, had been a place where Europeans and Americans went to indulge in the kind of things, namely hash and sex tourism, that were prohibited in their home countries. Ironically, homosexuality was also made illegal in Morocco in nineteen sixty two, But until the 1980s, when the combination of growing Islamic conservatism and the AIDS epidemic led to the persecution of gays, the law was hardly, if ever, enforced. While in Tangier in 1950, Truman Capote wrote, if you are someone escaping from the police or merely someone escaping, then by all means, come here. Paul Bowles was there, as was William Burroughs, who in a letter to Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac wrote, Did I tell you about the time Marv and I paid two Arab kids 60 cents to watch them screw each other? We demanded semen, too, no half-ass screwing. So I asked Marv, do you think they'll do it? And he says, I think so. They are hungry. They did it. Ginsberg was famously a member of the pedophile organization NAMBLA, the North American Man-Boy Love Association. Going back a bit further, you have the writer Orton was most compared to, Oscar Wilde, who made a number of trips to southern Italy and Algeria in order to engage in sex tourism with teenagers. On one of those trips to Algeria, he brought the French writer André Gide and procured an Arab boy for him. From then on, Gide became a proud pederast who wrote extensively about his exploits and engaged Hellenistic ideas about man-boy love to justify them.
3: And while we're talking about French writers boasting about their pederasty, we can't leave out Gabriel Matneff, who wrote openly about peristee for decades. In 1974, he wrote a book called Les Moins de Saison, The Under-16s, for which he was celebrated, and then made a career out of publishing novels, essays, and diaries of his sex tourism with boys and girls. In 2013, he was still an important figure in the French literary establishment, and won the Prix Renaudot, one of the most reputed French literary prizes. It wasn't until 2020, when one of his victims, Vanessa Springora, published an account of his abuse, called le consentement, or consent, that he was finally outed as the predator he had always been, and had always, more or less, admitted to being.
1: OK, we could keep going with this, but another thing to point out is that not only was this not the sole place this was happening, but also that the majority of sex tourists, then and now, were heterosexual men. In North Africa in particular, though, Joe Walton certainly wasn't the only one engaging in or writing about this behavior. Um,
4: Northern Europeans like sexualized and othered the, you know, Southern Europe and North Africa, right? And so there was a huge dose of just Orientalism mixed up in their uh, approach to uh, pursuing sex with children in you know, Algeria, uh, Tunisia, other like frequent ports of call in North Africa. Um, and, you know, that um, they saw them as, like, naturally sexual and savage and wild in a way that made having sex with them permissible.
1: Hans Ebenstein, a German-born tour operator and travel writer, said of Tangier in the 1960s, Many of these boys, some as young as 13 years, lacking friends or relatives in Tangier, found a haven in the male brothels. But the more enterprising operated on their own, or in pairs, and occupied windowless cubicles arranged like prison cells or animal cages around a central courtyard in tall tenement-like houses in the Medina, each with just enough space to contain a cot or a mattress and a radio. They were as delightful as adorable puppies.
4: There is no age of consent for boys. Like that is a kind of creation of very recent times. So historically, there were few ages of consent anywhere and where age of consent existed, it existed for girls. So when ages of consent are imposed and, you know, they, they they become higher like in Britain and the U.S. in the late 19th and 20th centuries and, they you know, 16 or whatever, they don't apply for marriage. So you can't have sex with an unmarried, outside of marriage, you can't have sex with a girl who is, you know, an under 16, but you can marry an 11-year-old, you know, and then it's fine as long as it's happening within marriage. So the concern, in other words, is not about really the well-being of the child or a child's incapacity for sex it's about marriageability and protecting like female virginity which is ultimately like the, the the property of her family and then within the italian system i mean what a lot of italian historians of sexuality have argued is that because the culture was like so focused on preserving the virginity of girls that um sex between boys as well as sex between boys and 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 adult males was seen as, like, an appropriate outlet, in fact, because the whole concern is, like, how do you keep these horny boys from having sex with the girls? Well, you know, if they're having sex with each other or having sex with, like, adult men, then, you know, then they're leaving the girls alone. And that's what, you know, the real concern is about, like, keeping the girls virgins.
1: This sick obsession with virginity over a child's safety definitely extends to the Muslim world as well. Homosexuality remains illegal in Morocco in 2022, and is prosecuted much more than it was in Orton's day. But sex before marriage is arguably even more scorned. These days, there's a thriving industry there for hymen restorations, and another that sells fake hymens made to simulate bleeding during sex.
0: From the 50s to the 70s, Western society embraced rather liberal attitudes towards sex with children. Sex in general was given a wider birth, and psychologists tended to minimize the severity of sex offenses. In this climate, the child, especially in the case of the child prostitute, was seen as the deviant, the one who tempted the bumbling, helpless adult into sin. Basically, the idea of the pedophilic roles constructed by Nabokov in Humbert Humbert and Dolores Hayes, a.k.a. Lolita. According to Humbert, it wasn't his fault. He was lured and seduced by a licentious and cunning 12-year-old.
4: When sexual relations between boys and men are criminalized, it's often like the police in Britain, for example, often target the boys who are seen as the aggressors in those situations. They're seen as like corrupt working class boys who are seducing, you know, upright middle class men in order to steal their money or blackmail them. And so like the force of the police is on the 14 year olds, not on the you know 30 year olds.
3: So there you have it. In Orton's day, it was the child sex workers who were in the wrong. Not the society who left them so poor they had little other choice, nor the rich European tourists who came to Morocco to use their bodies and then haggle with them over dirhams. It was definitely the kids' fault.
1: Now that we have a bit of context around the climate of pederasty and sex tourism in Orton's era, I think it's really interesting to look at what happened next and how society has changed in such a way that we now view what Orton was doing as criminal when then it was viewed as maybe just a bit more perverted than having sex with an adult male.
3: Or in some cases, less perverted. In the Arab world in particular, quote, straight men penetrating boys or other men was, and in some circles still is, seen as okay, or even as a testament to one's exceptional masculinity. Being penetrated, however, is viewed as debased and perverted.
1: Jesus, very rational, this whole patriarchy thing.
0: Anyhow, back to what happened next. And what happened next was the gay liberation movement. In 67, homosexuality in the UK was decriminalized. Orton, by the way, when asked about his feelings on the bill griped, it's only legal over 21. I like boys of 15. Decriminalization opened the door for gay liberation activism. The Gay Liberation Front was formed in New York in 1969 immediately following the Stonewall riots and soon expanded internationally the demand for gay equality got louder and louder, and in response, so did the homophobic backlash. It was only then, in the 70s, that pedophilia really became an issue. Why? Well, because homophobes used the specter of the child molester as a way to smear gays by claiming they were all pedophiles. At the same time, you had the emergence of gay-identified pro-pedophile groups such as NAMBLA in the US and the Pedophile Information Exchange in the UK which allowed homophobes to conflate homosexuality with pedophilia and gave them more fodder for their attacks. This was the real birth of the child sex abuse panic. Before the 80s, there just wasn't the outrage about adults having sex with children that there is today. I mean, the fact that this group called themselves the Pedophile Information Exchange shows that the word wasn't stigmatized in nearly the same way that it is today.
1: But as soon as these groups emerged and tried to connect themselves to the gay liberation movement, there was obvious objection from the majority of gay rights activists.
4: What happens in the 70s is that as part of the gay rights movement, like people within that movement draw a really sharp line between relations between adults and relations between children and youth and the exclusion of this whole pederastic genealogy is essential for the normative arguments on which the gay rights movement and toleration is based. Um, And so there are these like flashpoints, you know, like in the 1970s and 1980s where, um, you know, queer publications, you know, publish something written by like a a pro pederast or, you know, someone within uh, the movement, like, makes arguments for the elimination of the age of consent laws and the larger gay rights movement like turns on those people and shoves them out the door and
1: it came to a head in 1993 when the ilga the international lesbian and gay association achieved consultative status at the united nations and word got out that nambla was a member organization of the ilga Republican Senator Jesse Helms, notorious for hating black people and gays, apparently loved children so much, that is white, straight children, that he drew up a bill that would withhold $119 million in aid to the UN if they granted official status to any organization that condoned paedophilia. This caused the ILGA to boot Nambler from their ranks and state that paedophiles had no part of the gay rights movement. Nambler responded citing Socrates, Wilde and Gide, and arguing that pederasty was part of the gay movement and central to gay history and culture.
0: Well, you know what happened next. The gay rights movement once and for all made it clear that no, pederasts and pedophiles are not welcome in their ranks. And there is nothing about gay men that make them any more prone to pederasty or pedophilia than straight men. But it is worth noting that this line hadn't yet been drawn. This debate hadn't yet been had when Joe was alive and sleeping with teens in Morocco.
1: In the 1970s, attitudes about intergenerational sex began to change, mostly because the feminist movement was calling for victims of childhood sexual abuse, not to be considered co-conspirators, but the victims that they were. Anti-feminists, of course, opposed just about everything feminists stood for, but as gays grew more and more visible in society, conservatives latched on to the idea that children needed protection from adults, particularly two groups of adults, Feminists, who they argued were trying to destroy the traditional family structure and gays, of course, who were cast as sexual predators from whom straight society needed to hide their children. The wheels of the mass panic about child sexual abuse were already in motion when the AIDS epidemic hit and AIDS-inspired homophobia just intensified it. The myth of homosexual recruitment was perpetuated flamboyant gay men hanging outside schools like dealers trying to lure wholesome straight kids into a life of homosexual sin.
0: It's also worth noting
1: that the current transphobic panic which posits that trans rights
0: activists are trying to brainwash children on Instagram into changing their genitals, there's a lot of similarity to this the gays are trying to convert our kids hysteria of the
3: 1980s. But don't get us wrong, it's a good thing that society now attempts to protect its children from sexual encounters they can't consent to with adults. But this whole insane QAnon, Pizzagate
0: type of pedo-paranoia, it all has roots in homophobia. And here we need to emphasize something really important. Please turn up the volume and listen closely. And if you retain one fact from this podcast, let it be this. Gay men are not pedophiles. A tiny percentage of them, Yes but the overwhelming majority of child sexual abuse takes place within families and is usually perpetrated by heterosexual adult males on girls.
4: Pederasty and like pederastic cultures happening within a larger context of like basically male privilege that is not, you know, only about of course, you know, sex between adult men and boys or something, but like within a larger context of a sexual system predicated on male privilege to fuck people who are less powerful than them. And that extends richly to girls as well. Um, and so I agree with you, you know, totally. I and mean, this has always been one of the main arguments made against people who, uh, against this sort of like homophobic attacks on, on, on gay men as like child fuckers or something. Like the majority of sex between adults and children is happening within the family. And its majority is adult men who are sexually assaulting girls.
0: All statistics about child sexual abuse are dubious because the vast majority of survivors do not report their abuse. Ramona's is about to speak with Rachel about why that is. But here, after giving that disclaimer, I want to give you another statistic. Since the child sex abuse panic in the 80s, gay men have been tarred as pedophiles. Now one can make the argument that there are more straight than gay men and for that reason the statistic we just read about the majority of pedophiles being straight is just about numbers not percentages. But proportionally, the percentage of reported cases of gay men sleeping with prepubescent children is significantly smaller than the cases of straight men doing it. Again, we're talking about reported cases, and while there is a taboo around pedophilia, regardless of the gender of the people involved, it stands to reason that there's a greater one around homosexual relations that would likely cause less boys to report it. But what is clear is that most instances of reported pedophilia by gay men involve an adult male sleeping with a pubescent, not prepubescent, child. Therefore, and again, this is only if you feel there's a worthwhile distinction to be made between pedophiles and pederasts, and much contemporary thought about consent says that there is not, then most of the gay men who were labeled pedophiles and who were used to spread that label to all gay men weren't actually pedophiles. They were pederasts, like Joe
3: Orton. And in case anyone needs a reminder, straight dudes were open fans of pederasty as well.
4: He's not a monster alone, and he wasn't like the weird monster pedophile. Like intergenerational eroticism was really common in the '60s and '70s, right? And not just among men, but I mean, (laughs) among like men and girls as well. Like I mean, just like look at like you know '70s celebrities and like the sort of I mean rock culture and, like, young groupies.
3: Indeed. From Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis Presley to David Bowie and Jimmy Page, many rock and roll stars are notorious for having a thing for underage girls. Not only has it been glossed over, but it's often celebrated as part of the rock and roll lifestyle.
0: When I first started researching Joe Orton and thinking about what this podcast would look like, I thought it was pretty cut and dry. A brilliant playwright and a proud gay man in a time when being gay was criminal who was bludgeoned to death at the peak of his success by the man he loved. That was it. That was to be the narrative. And then I read the diaries. And when I got to the pederasty section, part of me just wanted to leave it alone. I discussed it with Ramona and Santi and we all recognized that to tell this story we'd be trying to navigate a minefield. Why? Well, because we didn't want to play into homophobic stereotypes about gay men. And Joe falls
3: into two stereotypes, because homophobes also like to claim that gay men hate women.
0: And Joe was definitely a big-time misogynist. Yeah, and I mean, if you Google Joe Wharton and pedophile, the only real article that pops up is from a site called conservativewoman.co.uk.
1: Oh, my favorite website.
0: <laughs> yeah, not exactly good company. So we really consider just not saying anything about it at all
1: which would have made us part of the problem, of the taboo around talking about the sexual abuse of children, which does very little to help its victims. As Rachel Hope Cleaves points out, this taboo, which characterises all paedophiles and pederasts as Jimmy Savile-esque super monsters, does a further disservice to victims. Because if a perpetrator is instead, as they usually are, a father, uncle, grandfather, brother, family friend, priest, coach, or teacher, then it becomes that much harder to speak about them committing monstrous acts because the friendly uncle doesn't fit the bill. He's not a monster. He's not luring kids into cars with candy. And it often means that victims are less likely to be believed if they do speak out.
4: I actually don't think you have to be a pedophile to to be an adult having sex with children. I think that probably for a lot of adults, that is totally within the plausible range of potential encounters and that if you have a system which gives a lot of power to adult men and not a lot of power to youth and children, girls or boys, then it is a likely outcome of that system. And so to my mind, monster discourse, which, you know, identifies like pedophiles as sort of like monsters outside of the social norms, um, really makes life a lot harder for children and youth, right? Right? By making their encounters unspeakable by um, making the rest of society turn a blind eye to all the people who are, like, are not monsters but are like out there um, sexually like, assaulting or exploiting children and youth.
3: So, was Joe Wharton a monster? Should he be cancelled? Should there be a statue of him? Evidently, we're not the only ones asking these questions right now. Next time, in the final episode of Season 2 of Penknife, we're going to bring you some fascinating news from Leicester. Penknife is created, written and produced by Corey Eastwood, Ramona Stout and me, Santiago Lemoine. Joe Orton is voiced by Lou Ellis. Special thanks in this episode to Rachel Hope Cleves, whose book, Unspeakable, about pederast writer, Norman Douglas, is as brilliant as it is harrowing. Penknife sound design, music, and all things audio are the work of Diego Sanchez of La Pianola Studio in Buenos Aires. The logo and all things visual have been made by Nelly Cuayar Torres. Flor Lopez designed our website, penknifepodcast.com, where you can find a full bibliography of the works we used in researching this season. And a very special thanks to Mr. Ricker Benelli for letting us turn his spare bedroom into a recording studio. If you're liking what you're hearing and want to help us out, the best thing you can do right now is to rate and review Penknife on Apple Podcasts and to subscribe on whatever platform you're using to listen to us right now. And if you really like Penknife and want to hear more of it, please consider heading over to patreon.com penknife to support us. We hoped Season 2 would be easier and cheaper to make than Season 1, But telling this story the way we thought it deserved to be told ended up being nearly as time-consuming and even more costly. We'd love to keep making pen life, but to do so, we really need your help. Even a cup of coffee or two a month would go a long way. And regardless of whether or not you leave us a review or a few bucks, we thank you for listening.